Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be reading two chapters today, um, but not consecutive chapters. So we're going to jump and we're going to read chapter 38 and then jump to chapter 45. And so a little different this morning. We're going to take it out of its order in our uh, New King James and in the Protestant Bibles. We're going to look at this a little bit differently so, if you want to put your finger on chapter 45 a few pages later, so we don't have too much rustling in the midst of switching from one to the other. Jeremiah chapters 38 and 45 this morning in the New King James Version, as is my custom, God's word declares. Now Shephthiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah spoke, to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, This city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Therefore, the princes said to the king, Please, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in this city and the hands of the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the peace of this people, but their harm. Then Zedekiah the king said, Look, he's in your hand, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now, Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the dungeon. When the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went, went out of the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Take from here thirty men with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury, and took from there old clothes and old rags, and let them down by ropes into the dungeon to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, Please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. And Jeremiah did so. So they pulled Jeremiah up with ropes, and they lifted him out of the dungeon. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. Then Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet brought to him at the third entrance of the house of the Lord. And the king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I declare it to you, you will, not surely, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you advice, will you, you will not listen to me. So Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord lives who made our very souls, I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel. If you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. This city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given in the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hand and they abuse me. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord which I speak to you, so that it shall be well with you and your soul shall live. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the word of the Lord that the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all the women who are left in the king of Judah's house shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes. And those women shall say, Your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you. Your feet have sunk in the mire. And they have turned away again. So they shall surrender all your wives and children to the Chaldeans. You shall not escape from their hand, but shall take, be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall cause this city to be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, 
Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. But if the princes hear that I have talked with you, and they come to you and say to you, Declare to us now what you have said to the king, and also what the king said to you, Do not hide it from us, and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I presented my request before the king, and he would not make me return to Jonathan's house to die there. Then all the princes came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he told them according to all these words that the king had commanded, so they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been heard. Now Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken, and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. Chapter 45. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, Woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. Then you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I will break down, and what I have planted, I will pluck up. That is this whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adverse, adversity on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. Well, this morning we have an opportunity to look into a passage that is not very happy. Um, both of them, um, but most of Jeremiah is that way, and that's why among the writings of Jeremiah is the book called Lamentations or Wailings. Um, the guy knew hardship, and he's going to express some of that and show us some of that, of what it took for him to minister for decades not just for a week or two, not just a month here and there, but for decades under this kind of pressure of uh, people that don't want to hear what he has to say, uh, the leadership, and uh, particularly the kings, uh, trying to get him to change his message. Why can't you say something different? Well, when God tells me, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, but it's that whole idea that somehow... Um, the fault is on the messenger. If you want to know where that idea came, don't blame the messenger. It comes from Jeremiah, I think, uh, more than any others that we have record of. And God, of course, called him as a very young man into this. And uh, by this point of the ministry of Zedekiah, he is well along in his ministry. Um, but we're also going to take a little flashback. At, and that's why I wanted to jump to chapter 45. You might say you went forward to go backwards. Yes, in Hebrew writing, um, that's very common because it's thematic. Um, but hopefully as we read those passages, both in chapter 38 and in chapter 45, you picked up on at least one or two terms that are shared in those two passages, which is why I want to overlay them on top of each other. Even though they are from different kings, referring to different people, um, that are under the thumb, if you will, of having to endure what God is getting ready to pour out on his people and endure a message that isn't very pleasant and people don't want to hear it and say, can't you come up with something better than that? Um, but he could not, um, for to do so would have been in violation of his commission by God. And so before we look into what happened to Jeremiah, and it's really more of the events than the preaching. We've looked at a lot of sermons, um, but today we're really going to look at what happened to him um, and some of the experiences that he had more than his message, because his message hasn't changed. We've studied that message and studied that message. The message isn't going to change. Um, his circumstances will not do that. He will not allow that to happen, as we're going to see. Before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word. And as always, we need your help. Because we always want to come to your word to affirm ourselves rather than to conform ourselves to your image. And so, Lord, help us to be ready in our hearts and our minds to be challenged in all of our preconceptions of what your word teaches uh, and what we believe, that we might be ready to lay that all out and uh, develop a biblical mindset 
Um, that is far different from uh, maybe our desires of our, of our flesh to hear. And Lord, give us a humbleness to receive your word with its authority and allow it to impact us. And we need your help in all of this, both in the preaching and the declaration that might be free from error and opinion, uh, as well as in the receiving of it, that we might uh, maintain our focus upon your Son, Jesus Christ, and the demands he makes of our lives. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just start off by reminding you that not everyone um, had to live through what Jeremiah had to live through. Um, but the fact is, is that he was an instrument of God that um, was commissioned for a very difficult task. Remember, he comes out of a priestly family. He has well-connected socially, um, knows all the top people. Um, they very quickly identify him as a prophet of God. Um, and now he is well-identified as that. We are in a city that is surrounded by an army for the third time, really for the fourth time, if you count the time they left to go take care of Egypt and then come back. But uh, this is really the third or fourth time that Jerusalem has been surrounded by the same army, the Babylonians, not even counting the Assyrians before that. Um, and so under Jeremiah's ministry, that's the condition of the land. And he's in a city that's under siege, and it has been for a while. How do we know that? Because we know within the chapter, that they've already run out of bread. There is no bread in the city. It has been under siege long enough that uh, the Ethiopian eunuch that we're going to see here is going to say, um, uh, you put him down there, he's going to die because there's nothing. If you don't give him at least some water to drink, um, there is no bread in the city, there's no food. And so um, we need to keep him up out of there. And uh, so we know that the siege has been going on for quite a while. Uh, we are really very, very near the end. If you look at the next chapter, um, if you have titles above your chapter headings in your Bible, it says Fall of Jerusalem. Um, that's how close we are. Jerusalem is about to collapse. It is, uh, it's going to be judged as a judgment of God. And so Jeremiah is in a condition where he is walking about uh, the, the outer prison area. And that gives him a capacity to, yes, make declarations that can be heard um, in the city. Uh, we often think, well, the prison, but he is in the, the courtyard of the prison, um, which means that he can be heard. He has interaction with people as they walk by in the streets. And his declaration, if you can just imagine him, <laughs> at the bars um, of a gate, um, and everybody walking by, uh, you need to surrender Run away! Go climb the wall, get out of this town, and surrender, and your life will be a prize to you, he says. This will be something that you'll preserve at least your life. Get out of here, get out of town as quickly as you can, and go over to the Chaldeans, surrender to them. The king won't surrender your city to him, but you can surrender yourself to him. And so he's sitting there in the courtyard and all of the army and, and those coming in and out and around that whole region are going to hear this and saying that if you, in verse 2, if you stay here, you're going to die. If you don't die by the sword, you're going to die by famine, which we know is already in place, or you're going to die by pestilence, which when you get a sealed up city, um, that happens very quickly. And so it's either going to be disease, it's going to be famine, or it's going to be the sword. You stay here, you're dead people. And so you've got a prophet of God, well-aged by now, well-advanced in years, well-established in his reputation, in prison, um, yelling this to every passerby and to every guard, every soldier, everyone he can encounter, uh, giving them this word. And of course, the princes or the commanders, the leaders of Israel, are dismayed by this. They said, every single person walking by there is hearing this, and people are getting discouraged. And some people are actually abandoning the city. They're listening to Jeremiah. Can you believe that? Some people were listening. Um, in fact, the king later on is going to say, I'm really worried about those people that ran out, because they could identify me. 
and they're going to. Not only him, but his wives and his sons, his whole family. They could be fingered now because there's Jerusalemites out there among the Chaldeans. They've joined them. And how better to demonstrate that you are loyal to the king of Babylon than to expose the king and his family. And that's going to happen before um, the end of the next chapter. So some people are listening. And they're getting out. And they are going to become part of the remnant of Israel that's going to return 70 years later. Their children. Uh, So some people are listening. And that bothers (laughs) the leadership. In fact, most everyone was listening, including the leadership. They know the source of this, that it's not really Jeremiah, it's the Lord, but they want to stop the mouthpiece. So they go to the king and say, we can't let this persist. People are leaving, people are discouraged, they're afraid, um, they're, they don't have the heart to fight. Um, how are we going to endure this siege and overcome this uh, with that kind of a spirit among us? And so we need to kill this man. And Zedekiah, of course, just says, well, he's all yours. Do what you, do what you want to do. And you would expect that since their purpose was to kill him, that they would just take a sword to him, but they don't. God has preserved him, and they put him into a place where he cannot be heard, where he doesn't see anyone, and there are no provisions. They have basically assigned him to a slow lonely, painful death. Um, This was not a strategic thing. This was a personal thing. Realize that. They presented to the king as a strategic element. We need to silence this to maintain a good morale among the troops. But they didn't take it and do a quickly take him out. They put him in the worst plot they could put in all Jerusalem and gave him no means and just let him die in that condition naturally. And that made it personal. And it demonstrates the heart of these men. And we think that somehow um, there should be more people that are neutral to the message of God. But there aren't. There is no neutral ground. Either you're going to hear it and run wherever God tells you to run. And, and the message of the gospel is where we want you to run. We want you to run to the cross. We want you to run to Jesus Christ. We want you to seek deliverance from him um, and trust in no man, nothing of this earth, nothing of yourself, none of your works, none of nothing. We want you to run to Christ. That's the word of the Lord today. Run there. As quickly as you can get there, get there. That's your deliverance. You don't know how much time you have. Um, the end is near not only of the world, but of your life. And even if you are young here. I'm looking around to see who's the youngest. Uh, got a couple pretty young ones. Bible says your life is like a fading flower. Poop and poop. Doesn't last long. So you don't have much time. You have an opportunity to go to Christ. Go to him quickly. And so you have people that heard that message and did it, and you have the balance that would not be obedient to, the work, to that word, to that truth, who, who just couldn't believe it. He says, no, if we jump out of the city, we're dead people. After all, we haven't heard back from any of those people out there among the Chaldeans. We don't know what the Chaldeans are doing to them. And yes, on the outside of that wall, you don't really know what's going on. We do, because we've been on the outside of the wall, in our Bibles. And everyone that defected to the Chaldeans was well taken care of. In fact, the prior king was taken to Babylon, and yes, he's in prison for a while, but you know how he ends his days? He ends his days for the, under the, the next king of Babylon. He ends his days by sitting at the banquet table with the king every meal in Babylon. But you see, the people inside the city walls have nothing but fear. 
Because they don't know how the Chaldeans are going to treat them. Even though God has come and said, jump the wall, get out there, and that is your deliverance. They can't see past the wall, and they think that that wall is their safety. But the wall isn't their safety. The wall is their cage. And that's what Jeremiah is about to start preaching to the king. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Jeremiah is put in this terrible prison in mire, which basically, it's disgusting, um, more than mud. Um, and so he's down there. We don't know how far he's sunk down in there. It is obvious that it's over his feet because he's going to reference that a little bit later on. Um, but he's down in the mire. You don't sit in it. You've got to stand there or you've got to sit in, the, in it. And um, disgusting. No food, no light, nothing. And sometimes that happens to the servants of God. They get down to those kind of conditions. Um, but he, when he comes up out of that mire, he's going to use that illustration to the king. Say, you see these walls as your deliverance, but they aren't. And we set up this perimeter around ourselves of our own belief systems, and the word of the Lord comes in and, and radically calls us to abandon them all, abandon all of your natural defenses that you would normally trust in, and abandon them. That's what the gospel tells you to do, abandon all that stuff. You trust in your wealth, it can go away like that. You trust in your health, it's gone. You trust in your good works, they don't measure up. Build them as high as you want, but all you're doing is encaging yourself in them. This is going to become a fire trap for you. And if you're going to die in here, the only deliverance is to get outside that wall and run to the Chaldeans and defect. And they're thinking, that just doesn't sound smart. Because they don't know what's on the other side of the wall. And fundamentally, when we come to people with the gospel, that's the condition they're in. We call them to Christ. But they can't see what's on the other side. Well, to them, all they see is what they're giving up. What's going to happen? I've got to change this in my life and change that in my life and change this in my life. And they can't get beyond that. And they don't realize that what you're giving up, by the way, what they're giving up in, in Jerusalem at this point is hunger, disease, and fear. And if you think those things would cause you to be more willing to jump the wall and go out, um, that's not true. People just lock down heavier. Trust the wall more. Even though that's what's causing all your problems. Invest yourself more in it. Build the wall higher. Guard the wall. God says, get out of there. For my deliverance is beyond it. But there's the unknown. The fact is, is that unbelievers don't know what's on the other side of that wall. They don't know what God is like out there. They don't know what God has in store for them. And we should be trying to tell it to them. We should be trying to show it to them. But it's difficult, isn't it? They can look at your life and say, well, you're a good person, you're, uh, you're happy, um, you're, you have a good family life, um, and they might even enjoy all that about you, um, but there's still a huge wall that by faith they cannot accept that that's something that can be theirs, that it's not something you produced inside yourself, but it's something God produced in you. And so we stand on the outside, or in this case for Jeremiah, he was in there among them. And um, a few listened. Some jumped the wall and got out and, and praised the Lord for them. Um, but the overwhelming majority, including the leadership, wanted to stay in there. They could not trust God enough to leave the defenses, quote-unquote, of the city and defect to the Chaldeans. The king himself is going to call Zedekiah to him and say, in secret, come here. Tell me what God's got going on. And Jeremiah knows where this is going, right? If I tell you the truth, you'll kill me. You already gave them permission to kill me. What? 
I'm just going to go back into that mire and you're going to let me starve to death. Either famine or pestilence will get me down there. You're trying to kill me by my own words is basically what they're doing. And if I give you advice, you're not going to listen. And Zedekiah says, I just need to know what God's plan is. And yes, everyone needs to know. And we need to tell them. But I think we need to have the same reservations that Jeremiah had. And that is recognize that just because we tell them, even though they ask, does not mean they're going to receive it. And here in secret, you might think, well, Zedekiah's heart's heading in the right direction. He's seeking out the man of God. He wants to know the truth. He wants to have God's word and his advice. And Jeremiah is going to share that with him. And Zedekiah um, hears it. And what is Jeremiah's word? Surrender the city. And I want you to notice what Zedekiah's response is. What is he afraid of? Verse 19, Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have defected to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hands and they abuse me. He wasn't afraid of the princes inside the city going against him if he declares we're going to surrender the city. He wasn't afraid of the population inside the walls. As Horrible conditions as Jerusalem had come to, he wasn't afraid of any of them because he's familiar with them. It's safe. We're inside the walls. What's he afraid of? I'm afraid of what's outside the wall. I'm afraid of those people. I knew them when they were like me, and now they're out there and they've defected. And yes, brethren, that's how your family feels about you when you came to Christ. You defected from them. Yeah. Several of you are coming out of Catholic families. Tell me they don't think of you as a defector, that you've left the faith because you've left their walls. You've made someone else a higher priority than them. You've made a whole class of people your family instead of them. And they don't get it. And Zedekiah is afraid of you. <laughs> You're a defector. You're out there among the enemy. And God says the enemy is going to win. But he's, the enemy out there is the instrument of God. The enemy out there is doing the work of God. And the problem isn't the enemy. And realize that to the lost that you encounter, Christ is their enemy. They view Jesus not as benevolent. They don't view God as benevolent. They view him as their enemy. You're going to take away my fun. You're going to take away all these things that I've grown attached to. Zedekiah's concern isn't about anything inside the walls. The reason he doesn't surrender is because he's afraid of what's out there. He's afraid that some of those defectors are going to ID him and his family to the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans will abuse him. He's afraid of what it's going to cost him personally. He's not thinking of the city at this point. He's thinking about himself. <laughs> He's not thinking what's best for Jerusalem. He's not thinking what's best for his family, really, to tell you the truth. He's worried about what's going to happen to me if I go out there. And I have all of these things that I have at my disposal here. Within the city walls, everyone listens to what I say. And, and I have, you know, this... Authority over the dying. That's all you have. You have some regard among dead men who are walking. Get outside the wall and surrender the city. And here's what God promises you. None of the things you're afraid of will happen. If you'll obey me, if you will Surrender, do what I tell you. Your fears will not come to fruition. You're not, you're, those people who have defected will not treat you like they're your enemy. They will not deliver you to the Chaldeans. 
And the Chaldeans that you're so concerned about will not maltreat you. Oh, you might have some humiliation to go through, but they're not going to... And when he says abuse you, he's not talking about laughing at you or imprisoning you, any of that. He's talking about uh, doing horrible things to their body and displaying it for the birds and dogs to eat. Which in a Hebrew mindset is, is the most frightening idea. Because they associated the preservation of the body and burial with the afterlife. And the worst thing that could happen and the most dishonorable thing that could happen to you is your corpse be hung out for everyone to see, dismembered and eaten by the birds and the wild beasts. So Zedekiah's expectation is that. And it's a sad thing. The, the man of God comes with a message of deliverance trying to say all these fears that you have of obeying God are empty. And in fact, by not obeying God, you are causing those fears to become real. Everything Zedekiah was afraid would happen if he surrendered the city happened to him because he didn't. When we get into the next few chapters, we're going to find Zedekiah trying to escape in the middle of the night, trying to run away with some of his family, and he gets found at Jericho. Um, he gets drug up to uh, Riblah, uh, way north, in, uh, north even of Damascus, um, and uh, he's going to have to watch his family slaughtered before his eyes, before they blind him, put out his own eyes. So the last thing he sees is his family being slaughtered, and then they're going to abuse him, and that's the end of Zedekiah. Everything he was afraid of would happen if he surrendered to the city. happened because he didn't. And that is the tragedy of the people you're encountering with the gospel. They're afraid by faith to trust God and get out of that wall and go out there to the unknown, not realizing that out there in the unknown is a God that will take care of them and will fill them with their, his spirit and brings forgiveness and restoration Think about these, these defectors who ran out the wall, who got carried off to Babylon. Um, within one generation, they were practically running the city of Babylon. They were the bankers. They were the king's cupbearers. These guys had high positions. And after Babylon fell into Persia, they got even higher. They had a wonderful life. And that's what we offer people. But they don't know what's on the other side of that wall. And their fear of misery and death keeps them inside the wall where there is nothing but misery and death. And what the prophet of God is called upon, the servant of God is called upon to do is to get in there and tell them there's just misery and death. If you want what I have, you're going to have to get outside of this stuff you're trusting in because it's that that's going to bring misery and death, not living like me, believing in God, trusting in him, following after the Lord. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is not going to bring you misery and death. Not spiritually. Not the thing you're really afraid of. Now, having said that, you might say, wait a minute, Pastor, you just said that, but here's Jeremiah in the mire. <laughs> but I want you to notice something about it. In the midst of God judging all these people, an obedient servant is there to bring light into their life. Whether they want to extinguish that light or not isn't relevant. We're going to talk about Jeremiah now. And Jeremiah has been given a death sentence. But you see, God has made Jeremiah's life a prize. It's a term used both in this chapter and in chapter 45, and I hope you picked it up in both chapters when I read it. That your life is a prize. And that offer was given to everyone, but I'm convinced that Jeremiah already possessed it. His life was a prize to God. Can you imagine that? 
something, that your life is something that God cherishes it and is going to preserve it and is going to use it. And when he's done with it, it will be over um, on earth. But in his presence, where do you find yourself? Where do you find yourself after death, physical death, if your life is a prize to God? Right in his presence. And that's why when we get to Revelation, who has the closest, nearest access to the throne of God? It is his, the martyrs of Jesus Christ. Those who pay the ultimate price for their faith. God says, you're the nearest. You're the dearest to me. You are my prize. And so Jeremiah is going to endure some maltreatment by evil men, not by God. And the maltreatment we receive, um, if it comes from family or a society or enemies um, who are stuck inside the wall spiritually, um, we accept because we recognize that they can do no harm against us except God allows that. And any harm we endure from their hand simply counts us worthy of greater glory and honor before God. And that's why the disciples, when they walk out of a beating they take at the hands of the, rab- of the Pharisees, rejoice that they are counted worthy of suffering for the gospel. So Jeremiah is down in the mire, and, and he doesn't like it down there, by the way. In fact, <laughs> he's gone out of his way to say, please don't send me back there. I don't want to go back. And none of us want to go into the miry pits that the world has prepared for us. And so Zedekiah says, well, you just tell, don't tell him that I asked for your advice. Um, he does have a little fearfulness over them, um, but it's not his first fear. And so he recognizes that that won't be well received by his own sons. And so he tells Zedekiah, just tell him that you had a request of me and, and not to go back down in there. But I want to pick out one person, two people actually. In the midst of a city lost, Jeremiah isn't alone. It looks like he's alone. In Jeremiah's mind, he's alone. Because he's down in a pit, ready to die, figuring this is it, I'm done. But there's a guy up top who's not even Jewish in terms of his physical lineage. (laughs) He is Jewish by religious conversion, but in terms of being an Israelite, he's not. He's an Ethiopian. He's from Africa. And so we come to this, and his name is Ebed-Melech. And verse 7 says he's an Ethiopian. He's an officer, a eunuch, in the house. He hears what everyone did to him, and he goes to the king and says, this isn't right. Isn't that great? And we get the idea, and many of the prophets started feeling this way. Remember Elijah? He says, I'm the only one left. And God says, well, that's not really true. But it feels like that, doesn't it? A lot of times. And I got to tell you, last couple of weeks, I haven't feel like I'm, I think I'm the only one left. But you're not. And God raises up people from strange quarters. Here's an Ethiopian comes along, well, this isn't right. He goes to the king and says, king, this isn't right. There's no bread in the city. This guy's down there. There's no water. There's no sustenance. There's nothing. The guy's going to die. And it's not right. And praise the Lord, he raises up from weird places unlikely heroes to come forward and encourage these special prizes of God, the prophets. And Obed, I'm sorry, not Obed, um, (laughs) Ebed, Ebed Melech is given a group of 30 men. You might say, why does it take 30 men to hoist him out? It doesn't. It takes 30 men to safely take a prison away from the sons of Zedekiah. He says, you take 30 men with you, and you go to that prison, you get them out of there. Not out of prison, out of the pit. And so they hoist him out, recognizing however long Jeremiah had been down there, we don't know. It doesn't inform us of that. 
but uh, they're concerned about Jeremiah. He is older by now, well advanced. They're concerned about his, that he physically can't even grab the rope. He is that diminished physically. So they realize that you can't climb up, you can't even hold on, so you put these rags around you under the rope, and we'll just, you just tie it around you, and we don't even want to tear your skin. He's that concerned about. Isn't that great? This guy's thought of everything. He said, the man's an old man. He's weak. He's deteriorated physically. Um, I, I've got to rescue him. And they call down to him, and they rescue him in this very gentle fashion. As gently as they can, they bring him up out of there. And he has plenty of manpower to get him out of there. There is no possibility that Jeremiah is going to slip at all. <laughs> He's going to bring him out. And this is the work of God. And yes, does Jeremiah get loose? No, he stays in the court of the prison. And he's going to stay there till the very end. And when Jerusalem falls, he's going to be there in the court of the prison. And when you're the army conquering a place, the first place you go to is the prison because you figure that that's where the enemies of the state that you just conquered are and they might be your allies. And they're going to rescue Jeremiah and set him free. One king earlier, Jeremiah had dealt with someone else, his amanuensis, his scribe, his secretary. If you remember a few weeks ago, we, we had the event that we talked about where he took his secretary because he couldn't get the message out to the temple and the secretary wrote it all down and, and delivered it and spoke it. And we weren't told this back then, but we are told this later on here in chapter 45, that Baruch, the secretary, was dismayed by the message. He's sad for his city, but he's also dismayed for himself. I don't deserve this. You're going to destroy all flesh. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna bring all of this hardship and judgment upon the city because of their rebellion and their disobedience, their idolatry, their, their immorality. You're going to judge the city. But verse 3, this is what Baruch said. It says, Woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sigh, and I find no rest. And while the word came from Jeremiah's mouth, as Baruch wrote it down, he realized that there's no getting out of this. These people are never going to listen to this. And now he starts to think about himself, and he says, well, I'm part of this people. I'm part of this city. And if this is what's going to happen, I'm going to have to live through this. And this is too often our attitude, and we don't recognize that the working of God is bigger than your own comfort levels. And God comes to him and corrects him in a very specific, pointed, prophetic utterance of Jeremiah, God corrects him and said, listen, you didn't build the town. You didn't build the city of Jerusalem. I did. You didn't lift up the Israel as a nation. I did. I lifted them up. They're my people. This is my city. And I'm the one that has to now tear it down. I planted it, I have to rip it up. I built it, I have to take it down. Why are you crying? <laughs> I'm the one. Do you think I enjoy this? Do you think this is something I take pleasure in? God doesn't, even, doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible says. But it's necessary. And I've built enough structures in my day to realize that sometimes you have to demolish something you built because it wasn't quite right. And it has to be undone to be done right. And so God confronts Baruch and says, this isn't your people, it's my people. This isn't your city, it's my city. And so while you're all in dismay over yourself, consider that I it is necessary for me to do this work, and I have a bigger 
responsibility than just your comfort. But that doesn't mean I've disregarded you. In the midst of all this work of me, I remember who my children are. God knows his own. And so he gives this word to them. At the end of verse 5, I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. I'll take care of you, trust me. Why do you want glory for yourself in it all? And that's the real challenge. Beginning in verse 5, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh. Imagine there is a prophet in the land and God speaks to him. And he's come to you and said, I want you to be my secretary. And you're going to have a private audience with me and I'm going to speak to you the word of the Lord and you are going to be the one to write down word for word. What an honor. And what happened here is Brooks thought, well, I'm in this honored role. I should, and he had great thoughts for himself. And then you're given the commission to take that writing and that since Jeremiah can't go into the temple and read it, you're going to go into the temple and read it. And he begins to have these grandiose thoughts having forgotten somehow that Jeremiah, the one you just had this audience with, is in prison. <laughs> and yet somehow you had greater thoughts for yourself. And the Lord corrects him, rebukes him, and says, are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't go after them. The adversity is going to be on all flesh. You're going to have to walk through this with a rebellious, disobedient people, and you're going to have to keep ministering it to them and keep ministering to it and keep ministering to it with them hating you, with you having to go through not only what they're going through, but you're also going to have to go through their nastiness towards you. You're going to get it doubly. But... I want you to know I am able to preserve you even in the midst of all that. And this is the wonder of God's grace. But we have a mentality that if I endure any hardships, if I have any struggles, if, if, if things don't go my way, that we throw up our hands and say, God, you're not there, and we end up sounding like Baruch. Why? Because you have imagined that success equals what the American dream is. And I've got to tell you something about the American dream. It's a nightmare. It is a complete nightmare. But we've swallowed that and we think and we associate that with success and that with with what's good and we find that there's no goodness in it and god says you endure and then you will find something that you have to get outside the wall to understand and to realize how good it can be when god leads you and suddenly the things you think of in your mind as enemies become friends and benefactors. And that's true philosophically as well. We think of suffering and doing that stuff as an enemy. And then on the other side of it, you say, well, that did me so much good. I trust the Lord on such a different scale today than, yet, than before that day. Because God has brought me through that. What do you think the, the events around the psalm where David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
Do you think he wrote that going in or coming out? I'm pretty sure he wrote that coming out of it. I mean, you look at, I mean, the guy was being hunted by his father-in-law who wanted to kill him. He would live like an animal. He lived like a crazy man for a while among the Philistines. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow death, I will fear no evil. Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, the presence of my enemies. There is a spiritual feasting that is available to us, but we're too afraid of that wall to go out there and experience it. And yes, for the Christian, there are also walls. Lord, I'll serve you, but I don't want to be discomforted. I don't want to have enemies. I don't want to have problems. I don't want to suffer. And because of our fear of suffering, we have caged ourselves in a place where we can't be blessed by God. And we can't serve him. We can't be used of him. And so while we look at the world and we, and we kind of scratch our heads and say, why can't they see all the good things God has for them if they would just confess their sin and get out of the muck and the mire? Well, they can't any more than you can realize that if you would just serve the Lord with complete abandon and take the results and maybe some family members will never talk to you again. Maybe you might lose your job. Maybe, and fill in the blank, whatever your greatest fear is. I'm pretty sure there's biblical examples of all of it. But if the Lord is with you, he will comfort you, care for you, and in fact prepare a banquet for you in the presence of your enemies. That's what he's offering. And the reason we can't go out there and live with that reckless abandon for Christ is because we have this wall that our faith won't let us defect past. And we come up against that wall and we say, no, I got trust in this wall. That's living a little dangerous. Now, there's a big difference to my wife and I. I, I am in growing up, and we've grown up. I, I know we are we're married as adults, and so... But if you think you stop growing up when you become an adult, you're wrong. I'm still growing up. And so we've grown up together for 32 years. I just had our anniversary like last week, so I had to remember that. Um, 32 years. And I got to tell you something. I am, we're growing towards each other. We'll put it like that. When we were younger, I was reckless abandoned all over the place, and she was, has to be perfectly planned, you know, very steady. And now we're kind of going like this. Now I find sometimes that she's out there doing some crazy, I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, you can't do that. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. She's overcoming her fears while I'm inheriting fears. So I guess we're coming more like each other. I don't know. Well, that we would have the faith to trust the Lord and recognize that we all have walls in our life that we need to defect over and go out there and trust God a little bit more and serve him a little bit more. And I, I have those fears. You have those fears. What if? And I've had to confront them in the last couple of weeks. Well, what if? Well, is the Lord the Lord? Are the promises still there? Am I still his child? Am I a prize? And if I'm a prize, God will take care of that. I just need to defect over that wall of fear and get out there and serve the Lord, period. And stop being afraid of the unknown out there that exists only in here, in my brain. And the fact is, the more I stay on this side of the wall of safety, the less God can bless me and the more miserable I am in my Christian life. 
Why are so many Christians downhearted? Because they're trapped in a wall. It's a wall a little bit farther out than the inner wall that holds in the unbeliever. You've experienced some of the liberty that you have in Christ. But, oh, we would break down those walls and get out there by faith into the open countryside where we just wait on the Lord. And he raises up strange people, Chaldeans, to take care of you and to bring you into their home and to feed you and bring you into the king's court. And, and, and then he might raise up an Ethiopian to get you out of the pit. And Baruch couldn't see it, and God had to correct him. You get these high-minded ideas that your life should be untouched, unsullied, and never inconvenienced for God. Well, that is a wall itself that keeps God from blessing you. And God says, you do what I tell you to do. Your life will be a prize to you wherever you go. That's a great statement at the end, wherever you go. Whether it's in the city, outside the city, whether it's in the mire, whether it's out of the mire, whether it's Babylon, wherever you go, your life will be a prize to you. I have ordained it. And that's the condition that we have as children of God. Our lives are a prize. We have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And with that kind of confidence, we should go out and serve the Lord, prepared to endure the miry pits if necessary and recognize that they can't do anything against you. That God isn't ready to turn to your good. And I've often wondered, how could the disciples think that being beat up for Christ was something to be counted worthy over and rejoice in it? But this is where it comes. They had scaled that wall and defected to God. And overcome the fear of physical pain, overcome the fear of being rejected, of being isolated, of being called names. They've overcome the fear of all of that. And yes, some days you're in a pit and it's black and there's nothing but mire around your feet, maybe up to your knees, and you're alone and you're hungry. And you think no one cares. But God does. And he can raise up some Ethiopian that maybe you've never met. Just always on the sideline over there. Always in the background. <laughs> to save you. With the gentlest of care. Yeah, God can raise up even inside the walls people to deliver you when your life is a prize to him and to you. And so let us consider that we have eternal life. And so we don't need to go around, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. You don't need that. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Get your eyes off of this world and the walls of fear that encompass you and serve the Lord with the joy of the Lord and he will deliver you. It's his promise. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for a great lesson from the life of Jeremiah, though less from his mouth, but yet from your work in his life. We thank you. And Lord, we pray that we might share his faithfulness to declare your truth, no matter whether people hate us for it or not, that some might scale those walls of fear that are in their life to reject the safety that they pretend to give, that they might join with you. Lord, help us to give them that message. And though they hate us for it, that we might press on and give it to them more. And Lord, then help us to Obey it ourselves. And forgive us for our cowardice in your service. Help us to recognize that we have placed so many limits on your blessing because we have shrinked away 
from radical service to you that we might live a little more comfortable lives. And yet, we know that there is no real hope in that, but just quiet desperation. So Lord, invigorate us with a faith that says, though I walk through a valley of shadow death, I will fear no evil because you are with us. Or may we function that way as a church, as families, as individuals, to your honor, praise, and glory, and until your coming. And Lord, come soon. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.